You're now listening to episode 81 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Hope everyone had a great holiday season and is ready to crush it in 2020. We're back here today with special guest Frank Gallinelli. Frank is author of the best-selling book, What Every Real Estate Investor Needs to Know About Cashflow and 36 Other Key Financial Measures. Frank is also founder and president of RealData.com, one of the real estate industry's leading investment software firms, and teaches real estate investment analysis at Columbia University's Master of Science in Real Estate Development program. In today's episode, we discuss investment analysis and key financial metrics real estate investors need to pay attention to, including NOI, cap rate, cash flow, internal rate of return, and more. Also, if you stick around to the end of today's episode, Frank is a very special offer for the listeners of the Real Estate CPA podcast. Hey, everyone. I want to let you know that we'll be hosting the first ever tax and legal virtual summit specifically for real estate investors coming up Saturday, February 29th and Sunday, March 1st. At this event, you'll learn about lucrative tax and asset protection strategies from the top legal and tax experts in the industry. Topics include the real estate professional status, cost segregation studies, 1031 exchanges, self-directed retirement accounts, entity structuring, estate planning, and so much more. Don't miss this incredible event designed to save you thousands in taxes and help protect the assets and wealth you work so hard to build. Head over to www.taxandlegalsummit.com and use promo code RECPA for 50% off your tickets. Again, that's www.taxandlegalsummit.com taxandlegalsummit.com and use promo code RECPA for 50% off your tickets. See you there. But for now, we're going to jump right into today's episode. Frank, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Before we dive into due diligence, investment analysis, and all that fun stuff, can you give our listeners a little information on your background and what you're currently up to these days? Okay. Well, thanks for having me on your uh, your podcast today. My background goes back actually quite a bit. Uh, I've been in in this field, if you want to call it that, uh, for the, the, you know forty years or, or perhaps a little bit more. And it was one of these sorts of things where you know one thing leads serendipitously and without planning to the uh, to the next. I, you know, if you want to go back that whole forty years, I'll make this the uh, the short version of my CV. <laughs> uh, started off as a as a math and English teacher, which was probably foreshadowing. Now that I think about it into a later life when I would write books and they would be full of numbers. But uh, as a teacher, didn't make a whole lot of money. So I started getting a secondary income from going into real estate, first as a part-time real estate agent, then morphing into a uh, a sales manager, first residential, then a commercial sales manager. And so there was serendipity number one that the owner of the company uh, for whom I was sales manager was one of the uh, original prime movers of the Realtor CCIM program, which, if you're familiar with it, is the the educational track for commercial brokers. And it was from him that I learned about uh, income property and income property analysis. I learned about it and then then ended up uh, teaching it to the salespeople that I was supposed to be managing. So uh, 
that's how you know I, I kind of moved from one field into a completely unrelated field. But uh, then fast forward a little bit, I'm, I'm kind of got drafted into a family business to help out with the financial side of it. And while I was doing that, I was also still interested in, in real estate, of course, and and getting involved uh, more and more with my personal investing. And at one point, I was uh, trying to make sense out of a piece of commercial property that uh, that I was planning to buy. And it had some some you know complications and some issues. And uh, what happened at that point was that I happened to coincide. That event happened to coincide with the emergence of these funny little black boxes that later became called personal computers. So I got one of these things. I said, "Well, let's see if I can use this to do the same kind of analysis that I've been doing and, and teaching to my you know commercial salespeople in the past." And so I picked up that, picked up something called a spreadsheet program. So what's this thing here? And built a model to try to analyze that property. And in fact, I did analyze that property. And I did 18 variations of analyzing that property. And some colleagues kind of looked over my shoulder and saw the stack of papers. And they said, how'd you do that? Uh, so once again, serendipity kicks in and says, well, if these guys are asking me, how did I do that? Then maybe I might be onto something here. And so a software company was born, a company that I still own and run called called Real Data. So we've been, uh, it goes on maybe 37 years or so that we've been uh, selling uh, uh, selling this software. So fast forward yet again a little bit more. And uh, so we're in business maybe seven or eight or nine years at this point and sitting around talking about the kind of tech support questions that we get on a routine basis. And that's when we realized that a lot of the tech support questions that we have aren't technical at all, but they're from people who don't quite understand how this analysis is really supposed to be done. They don't really understand the type of uh, you know financial dynamics that we're trying to uh, to sort out with our software, which leads me to believe then that maybe real estate investment education should be part of our mission. So the internet has emerged. Uh, I start writing articles online, and that attracts the ed- uh, the attention of an editor from McGraw-Hill, calls me up one day and says, would I be interested in writing a book? Of course, since I don't know anything about publishing, I don't know how grateful I'm really supposed to be. So I, I give the guy a hard time, but I, <laughs> I ultimately do write the book. And uh, that was the first of several, and it's the one that I think surprised me in terms of how long it has has survived and certainly a surprise to the publisher in terms of how long it's survived. But, uh, you know, I wrote it in four months and it's uh, it's hung in there now for 15 years. So I think I got my return on investment for the time I spent writing that book. And I think the reason it was successful, I mean, they sent me a sample of, they said, why don't you write something that kind of looks like uh, this maybe? So I took a look at the book they sent me. And again, having no understanding of the degree of respect I'm supposed to convey uh, in this relationship, I said, you know, I've, uh, I, I took a look at that book and I, I can think of three people who could understand it and I'm not one of them. So maybe uh, I should write something, you know, that's in plain English that regular people who have a reasonable degree of intelligence but no particular experience in finance or real estate would be able to understand. So that's what I set out to write. And that uh, came uh, trippingly off the tongue, as it were, and uh, because uh, I was just trying to say things in the plainest possible terms. So I guess that's how it came to be, serendipitously yet again. So somebody picks up the book and talks to a fellow 
that he knows, who happens to be director of a graduate program at Columbia University. And that leads me to being invited to teach this same stuff in the Columbia grad school, which, you know, I've done for, for I've taken the last couple of years off, but basically it's been about a decade and a half of my doing that. So uh, as I said, you know, the knee bone's connected to the shin bone. One thing has always seemed to have uh, led to another. And uh, the final connection there is that uh, uh, took a lot of the material that I put together for teaching my uh, my live and in-person graduate course and decided, well, you know, this might be good material for an online course also. So a couple of years ago, put together an online course, online video course that uh, has uh, Fortunately, gotten a good deal of attention. A lot of a lot of folks have been have been using it, and uh, uh, so that's uh, that's out there also. So that's what's been keeping me out of the pool halls for the last forty years. <laughs> Awesome. Great, great story. And, and we love the success of the book. Everybody who doesn't know the name of the book yet, it is uh, What Every Real Estate Investor Needs to Know About Cash Flow and 36 Other Key Financial Measures. It is a book I believe every every real estate investor should have on their bookshelf just to reference whenever you're analyzing a property. And it brings us to a, a good point. You know, Every property needs to be analyzed before it's purchased, of course. But what sort of due diligence, what should investors be doing before they start to analyze a specific property? Yeah, that's a very good. That's a very good point, Tom. The uh, due diligence really should precede your getting out your calculator or your pencil or your software or whatever, because uh, before you can start crunching the numbers, you've got to have some sense of what the numbers are or what they should be. And one of the things I see among beginning investors uh, quite a bit is that they don't take the due diligence as a really a serious and important part of their preparation for investing. In a, in a property. And they also, uh, when they do pay attention to it, they, they have a tendency to make the mistake of taking the information they've been given, taking it at face value, whether it's information they've gotten from a broker or information they've gotten from a seller. They just take it and they assume that, you know, that's okay. And uh, now I'm going to start working on whether or not uh, these rents and these expenses justify my buying for the, the property for what they're asking for it. And I always tell people, don't take it at face value. Don't take it for granted that it's correct or that it's complete. Yeah, there. I can give you a whole bunch of, of you know what I feel are fairly obvious examples, but you know maybe not, they're not obvious to to uh, someone who's never done this before. For example, don't be shy about asking to see the leases on the property. Yeah, they've told you what the rents are supposed to be, and the information they've given you may be entirely correct, but it may not also tell you the complete story. For example, you know, it's, maybe it's a commercial property and maybe you know what the current rents are, but are there steps that are going to occur where the rent is going to remain level for certain units for a certain period of time, then bump up to a, uh, uh, you know, a predetermined new level? Or maybe there are options. And really, you definitely would want to know about something like that. Maybe you've got a tenant in there who's at a rent that you think is perhaps a little below market, but when you get your hands on the lease, you find that that tenant has options to renew at a continued below market rent. Something you may not know if someone simply gave you you know, a list of current uh, rents. Uh, a lease could have uh, what's called a kickout clause. Maybe uh, you've got a commercial tenant. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not unheard of in a retail tenant situation where the tenant may have the option of getting out of the lease if they don't meet certain sales thresholds within a given period of time. If you don't see the lease, you don't know about that. So looking at those kinds of things, I think, are essential to doing your property portion 
of the due diligence. Same thing is true on the expense side of your due diligence. You know, you could be told quite correctly what the current property taxes are. But have you been told if those property taxes maybe have received some kind of temporary abatement? for some reason. Well, if you don't know, you won't know unless you ask. And this kind of information ought to be readily available from the taxing authority. Same thing is true with insurance. You may be given the correct information about what the insurance cost is. But that insurance cost, because the current owner has a bundled or a packaged deal with you know 17 properties, and that's why the insurance is this amount, or maybe they don't have any kind of uh, revenue uh, or rent income uh, coverage in their insurance, and there's something you want. So get your own insurance quote instead of relying on someone else's. So this uh, due diligence is a thing you'd have to take seriously, and you have to do it in some kind of depth. Another part of the due diligence that I really find that um, beginning investors have a, an unfortunate tendency to overlook is the market due diligence. You know, no property lives in a vacuum. There are realities about where that property is that will affect its long-term performance, even affect its current performance. When you're going to evaluate it, you may need to know what the current market cap rate is, for example, for properties of that type in that particular location. You may need to know about what some of the municipal budget issues are that are going on. Is there a significant uh, property tax increase on the horizon for properties generally, not just for this one, because uh, you know they're building new schools or, or whatever. And you have to keep your ear to the ground. Uh, same is true of employment data about the market in which this property resides. You know, Our employers moving in, our employers moving out can have a very significant impact. Let's say you're going to buy a, a multifamily property, you know, an apartment building. If employers are, are moving out, what kind of effect is that going to have on the demand for apartments? So you got to you got to keep in mind that the market has to have its own due diligence as well as the property. That's a great point. And we've talked in the past about how do you analyze a market, both from a macro and a microeconomic perspective. And I think in this instance, we can talk macro in terms of the geographic location, micro in, in terms of the actual neighborhood, if you want to play that granular. But one of the key ways or one of the key resources that most cities and towns will have is something called a comprehensive annual financial report. It's a CAFR for short. You can literally just Google your city and then type CAFR, and you should see audited comprehensive annual financial reports from the city. There's a demographic section and a statistical section in each one of those reports that will give you a lot of really good information from a macro perspective. So really, really good stuff there. Now, Frank, kind of going back to the the book, so, so you had 36 key metrics. Do I have to look at all 36 metrics whenever I'm doing the underwriting on, on any deal, or are there some really key, hard-hitting ones that I always need to focus on? Well, gee, I wrote the whole book, so we already read it from cover to cover. <laughs> the whole the entire thing. <laughs> Otherwise, you are leaving something else. <laughs> But I think, I think unless you want to have this podcast have more episodes than Game of Thrones, do you want to just focus on the really, really important items and the other stuff we can save as kind of decorations for another day? Uh, would that be okay? Yeah, yeah. And so Tom and I kind of talked about this before. Yeah. Um, we invest in real estate ourselves. And I'd be really curious to, to hear if you think that we're right or not. We think that the, the key metrics to know are net operating income, cap rate, DCSR, debt service coverage ratio, cash flow, and discounted cash flow. And then IRR, of course. You must uh, have been reading my notes. 
<laughs> Good. So that matches. All right. <laughs> uh, so tell us about net operating income. Why don't we step through each one of those? Okay. Um, well, briefly, let's talk about net operating income first, and then we'll hit cap rate next. Okay, yeah. This is actually what you just described. Thank you kindly for uh, kind of uh, filling in the blanks for me here, because when I talk about this with my grad students, I always tell them that they've got to think in a linear fashion, that one thing kind of follows from another, from another, from another. And when you think in that way, not only do you have a better chance of reaching a bottom line, because, you know, when you connect the dots in a line instead of a circle, you know, you're more likely to end up someplace other than where you started. And also because you have a good chance, perhaps, of being able to explain this to somebody else, because there's a real good chance you might have to explain your thinking to a third party. So, yeah, NOI is uh, exactly uh, where I think I would, would jump off. Uh, you know, back when investors first learned to walk upright, which is when I learned this business, we used to use a form, and I still use this acronym, APOD, Annual Property Operating Data which starts off with the revenue lines and then goes through the operating expense lines and you subtract B from A and you get the net operating income. Now, there's a couple of things I think that uh, we want to think about when we're thinking about NOI. Uh, First of all, you've got that revenue line and you've developed that by looking at the leases and making a reasonable uh, projection of what it might be today and what it might be in the the future. you subtract out of that an allowance for vacancy and credit loss. Now, even if you don't really, truly, in the, your heart of hearts, think you're going to have a vacancy, I always suggest that people still do this as part of their computation of NOI. And the reason is because other people are going to do it when they look at that property for some reason on your behalf. For example, a bank appraiser is going to make that allowance. So you make that allowance too. And then you've got to look at your operating expenses. And here's where, again, uh, when I I talk to novice investors, um, there's a couple of issues with operating expenses. One is understanding just what that term means. And operating expenses is an expense that you have to pay to operate the property. So I can recall many times when we first went into the software business, people would call us up and they would look at this at this APOT form, which is kind of the equivalent of a business profit and loss statement, and they'd say, "Oh, your thing is all is all wrong here. You haven't you haven't accounted for uh, uh, for mortgage interest." And I would say to them, "Well, thank you very much for your call, but you don't need a mortgage to operate a property. Therefore, mortgage interest should not be." an operating expense because you don't use it to operate. You don't use depreciation to operate a property. So none of these things ought to be subtracted out when you're trying to figure out the net operating income. Um, When you look at uh, the expenses that you might have been given by the seller of the property or by the seller's broker, I think one of the most egregious uh, errors that I see is that not only do folks have a tendency, as I mentioned earlier, to take the expense, the operating expense numbers at face value, but they also forget to look at that list of operating expenses and to say, what's missing here? For example, then probably the most obvious example is that you'll see no mention of maintenance costs. Well, of course, you have to maintain a property. So if they, if the seller hasn't told you anything about maintenance costs, this is the beginning of a conversation, clearly, that, that includes your physical inspection of the property or your inspection of the physical property, if you want to put it that way, 
and what kind of information you're being given. Does the fiscal property indicate that there's deferred maintenance or perhaps it's recently been renovated to the extent that the maintenance needs are you know, below what is typical, at least it has been below what is typical? I think one of the most common missing items is property management. People will get a list of expenses and they'll start working on their numbers and there'll be no entry for a property management expense. And they'll tell me, well, that's not a problem. I'm going to manage the property myself. Wrong in terms of analyzing the property. That's a wrong step. And that's just because at some point you might not be managing yourself, right? Yeah, well, that's that's certainly the case. At some point, you may not be able to manage the property itself. Life has a funny way of changing our plans. And so while right now, uh, you know, I might be perfectly happy to be climbing a ladder and cleaning the rain gutter, maybe, you know, I'm going to have to have somebody who's going to be over at that property checking whether it needs to be done, whether other things need to be done. So it may not be possible. But the fact is, even if I'm doing it myself, my time has a value. I mean, you go and buy stock. Let's say you go buy stock in Amazon or the IBM or something. Well, they don't expect you as you know to earn your return on that stock. They don't expect you to come and vacuum the hallways in your spare time. No, they have people who manage it. You don't have to have physical, personal, physical management of your other investments. Uh, so you shouldn't be assuming that your personal, physical management of this investment is without some sort of compensation being accounted for. Perhaps even uh, more to the point, even if you're anticipating a robust and active life, you know, for the next couple of decades, and, you know, you have nothing better to do with your time other than to go over there and manage the property. The fact still remains that when you go to try to get that mortgage, the mortgage lender is sending out an appraiser to estimate the value of that property. And the process that that appraiser is going to go through is going to include imposing or inferring, implying, if you have whichever is the right term here, uh, a, a property management expense. If you didn't put one in, that appraiser is going to put one in for you. And that property management of, uh, expense, that allowance for property management, even if you're not actually spending it and writing a check for it, that allowance is going to affect the appraised value of the property. So if you don't do it, somebody's going to do it for you. So I think you ought to do it before you get to that point. So when you do get to that point, you get down to that line called net operating income. And the reason that it's important is that it affects other things in the investment decision process. As I just mentioned, the appraisal, the appraised value. That commercial appraiser is going to come out and is going to use, he or she is going to use that NOI and smack it against a cap rate and say, this is, in all likelihood, the current market value of the property. So if you don't have that NOI correct, your estimate of the current market value of the property is probably not going to be correct. So the NOI is an essential part of the process. And uh, I'm not going to skip two jumps ahead on our, on our checkerboard here, but we're going to see that it gets used in one of these other key calculations. Now, you had mentioned cap rate. So that connects directly to NOI. What do you use the NOI for? Well, you use the NOI to apply a cap rate and say, okay, I'm going to capitalize this income. And that should tell me more or less what the current market value of this property is. Just to clarify, the cap rate 
like if I don't finance the property, then theoretically the cap rate should be the dollars that I earn on my investment, right? So if I buy a million dollar property for cash at a cap rate of 8%, my net operating income is $80,000. That's correct. Because cap rate is independent totally of financing, if you will, a, a more practical element or a more practical ingredient as we get down the uh, the road of our linear analysis here. Uh, but the value of the property should be independent of the financing because the value of the property shouldn't change because you have good credit and can get good financing and I'm a deadbeat and I've got to get expensive financing. And so right. does the property have a different value because you're, you're a good credit risk and I'm a deadbeat? It shouldn't, that shouldn't be the case. And so what you're basically saying there is that the net operating income of the property is not going to change between you and I. The net cash flow might change, but that's going to be different than the net operating income because we have to take into account the financing and everything like that. So cap rates independent of financings. We're just strictly looking at the net operating income. Now, if I identify, let's say I'm in a market with a 6% cap rate and I identify a property that has an 8% cap rate, what, what does that tell me? Or does that tell me anything? Well... There could be a couple of messages there. Um, the first one is that I think I want that property with the 8% cap rate, because what that tells me is that I'm paying less to get the same net operating income than I would have paid to get the one with the 6% cap rate. So on the surface of it, this is a good thing. The lower the cap rate, the more expensive the property is relative to the amount of return it's going to give me. And, that, and, and don't mean to cut you off, but that makes sense. We have a lot of clients that are uh, in very expensive cities, and those expensive cities will typically hover around cap rates of 2 to 3% versus clients that are kind of out in uh, tertiary markets where cap rates are still hanging out around 8%. Like I, I invest a lot in Hickory, North Carolina, and cap rates there are about 7 and 7.5%. 7 but if you compare that to San Francisco, where they're at like 2.5%, yeah. your, your same dollar is is not buying as much. Yeah. And uh, of course, if you're in, if you happen to be in the same market and you see properties with, with two different cap rates, uh, you start to ask yourself, well, what, what's wrong with this picture? If is one of these atypical, for example, is that one with a low cap rate? Are they simply expecting to get more than the property is worth? What is the prevailing market cap rate for properties of this type and in this location, because there's no such thing as a good cap rate or a bad cap rate. Cap rates are, are entirely specific to their location and to the property type. So if this were an apartment building, the prevailing cap rate for apartment buildings in this 10 block area would not necessarily be the same as the cap rate for office buildings in that same 10 block area. So if you're going to, if you're going to use cap rate to help you judge what the property value might be, then you have to make sure that you're doing an apples and apples uh, kind of comparison, that you're looking at the same kind of property in you know a, a very circumscribed uh, location. But all those things being equal, if the cap rates are in fact unequal between two properties, then you have to figure that one of them is an outlier for some reason. If the one with the higher cap rate turns out to be the outlier, you got to start looking under the corners of the bed covers and say, okay, so why is the seller willing to take less than what the prevailing cap rate would be? Is there an issue? Maybe it's a personal issue. Maybe you know, you know, the guy's just got to sell. Or maybe there are legal or functional issues with the property that make it less attractive and, and, and the seller is having difficulty finding a buyer. So the cap rate can give you, you know, kind of the canary in the coal mine kind of uh, 
perspective on what's going on with that uh, with that property. One more thing I want to say about cap rates, which is going to which is going to have a connection as we get a little bit further down our, our linear path here, and that is when you look at cap rate as a method of valuing property, you have to appreciate the fact that what you're doing here is exactly what an appraiser is doing, and that is looking at what we believe the market value of the property is at a point in time. At this moment, this is what I think the market value of the property is. So if we take a few steps back and uh, start dealing with a little bit of a bigger picture mindset, we can say, okay, that is useful and helpful information, but is that the be-all and end-all of my analysis process? Am I simply concerned with paying something that seems to be the appropriate market value at this given point in time, or is my purpose in investing to get a return, a gain, a building of wealth over an extended period of time? So we're going to cycle back to that to that question in just a moment. Now, as we go on down, I said NOI was going to be useful in something else. And that something else is another metric that I find people have a tendency to overlook, something called debt service coverage ratio or, or debt coverage ratio. Okay? And that one's a pretty easy one to understand. It's a really easy one to calculate, and it's a bad idea to overlook this for a number of reasons. Debt service coverage ratio is simply taking the net operating income and dividing it by your annual debt service. Your annual debt service is a you know that's a that's a fancy term of art for your the total of your annual mortgage payments, just principal and interest mortgage payments. So why does it matter? Obviously, if the two things were identical, if your net operating income and your annual debt service were exactly the same, then one divided by the other gives you a ratio of one. No place you go is that one going to be good enough. When your lender looks at that property and your lender looks at you as the borrower, they're going to say, no, one doesn't cut it. Because as I've said, I think a couple of times in my, in my books and, in, and certainly in my, in my online course and, and elsewhere, you know, the chances of encountering unexpected expenses, well, those chances are a great deal greater than the chances of encountering unexpected revenue. So if anything's going to happen that's unplanned, it's that you're going to have more expenses than you planned on, not that you're going to have more rent than you planned on. So what your lender is really saying when uh, the lender looks at your debt coverage ratio is that there's got to be wiggle room. There has to be margin for error. So if you're going to get this mortgage, you're going to have to have and be able to demonstrate that you have a reasonable anticipation of revenue in excess of what your debt service is. Well, how much in excess? Prior to the great meltdown of 2008, the typical answer to that question would have been that the debt coverage ratio should have been 1.20 or greater, meaning you'd have 20% more net operating income than you absolutely positively needed to have in order to pay your mortgage every year. Well, okay, so come the meltdown, that requirement typically got larger. With most lenders, it grew to maybe 1.25, even higher than that. So 1.25 means you would have 25% more net operating income than you really needed to pay the, the annual debt service, to pay the mortgage. 
two key reasons why you care about the debt coverage ratio. Number one, if you don't have and cannot convincingly uh, show that you're anticipating an NOI that's at least, we'll use the 25% uh, uh, benchmark for our conversation here, that you can uh, reasonably show that you've got that, well, you're not going to get the mortgage. And if you do all this fancy financial analysis and you walk into a lender and you put the numbers in front of that lender and it shows that you've only got a 20% wiggle room, not only are you not going to get the mortgage, but you're probably going to embarrass yourself. Because the lender is going to say, you know, why did you come in here? Uh, you, you know, you didn't bother to ask before what our, you know, what our underwriting requirements are. So you're not only not going to get the mortgage on this property, but you're going to get some funny looks when you come in for the mortgage on the next property because clearly you didn't know what you were doing last time. And of course, as a practical matter, also you care about this debt coverage ratio for the same reason the lender cares about the debt coverage ratio that you don't want to be the person who is supporting your property because you didn't have enough money to pay the debt. The idea of investing in a rental property is that the property is going to support you. So if you're not acquiring something where you have enough money and enough wiggle room to pay that mortgage, if you're getting yourself into that situation, you're setting yourself up for, for having to fund the shortfall out of your own pocket, which is not why you invest in property or anything else. So debt coverage ratio, often overlooked, but shouldn't ever be overlooked. So we've covered uh, NOI, cap rate, the debt service ratio, the DSCR. Looking at cash flow, what what do investors need to know about cash flow? Some is good, more is better. (laughs) A lot more is really good, right? Yeah, right. Okay. When you see negative numbers in your cash flow line, you have to start asking yourself, why am I doing this? And real quick, Frank, I just want to parse out that cash flow. So sometimes we have clients that get a little confused, right? They, They see positive cash flow, but then when we report to the IRS what their tax position was at the end of the year, it's actually negative taxable income. Right? And they should be jumping for joy. Yes. Yeah, right. right. They, should, yeah. they should be giving you group hug. <laughs> right, right, right. But I think it's really important to, to understand that cash flow is, is what's hitting your pocket at the end of the day. So we want positive cash flow, but we wouldn't tell the IRS we actually lost money. So just wanted to interject on that. Real quick. Yes, absolutely. No, no, you're absolutely correct. Uh, once again, getting back to my grad students, uh, I asked them, you know, of course, 15 years ago, everybody raised their hands when I asked this question. The question was, does anybody here have a checking account? <laughs> now, of course, everybody, you know, does things with PayPal or, you know, by smacking their phone on something or whatever. But they would always raise their hand and say, yes, I have a checking account. Says, well, cash flow is, you already know what cash flow is because you've got a checking account. The money you put in minus the money you take out is your cash flow. So it's money in minus money out. It doesn't make any difference why the money went in. It doesn't make any difference why the money came out. The difference is your cash flow. So if, for example, you collected rent or you took quarters out of the coin-op laundry machine in the basement of your apartment building or whatever, that's money in. Uh, Money out was for any of the operating expenses for paying the mortgage, which did not affect the NOI, but now it does affect the cash flow. Uh, All of those things will reduce the cash flow. And can you actually talk about that real quick, Frank? Because I think that like cash flow can really be summarized, like you said, by taking your money in and then subtracting the money that you pay out. But how does that differ from net operating income? Uh, because not everything that you pay out affects net operating income. 
your mortgage payments don't affect net operating income. Curiously, parts enough, of your mortgage payments affect net operating income. And what do you mean when you say mortgage payment? By the way, uh, the entire thing—that's uh, the uh, the principal and interest. Principal neither, and interest. Neither one of those parts affects net operating income. Okay, they both affect your cash flow. One of them, the interest portion, affects your taxable income, but the other one doesn't. Okay, and then we get back into the conversation of your interest that you pay versus my interest that I pay are going to be different, right? If we go back to that cap rate conversation, the interest, the reason that the, the mortgage interest is not in the net operating income is because it's going to vary investor to investor, but it's not reflective of the actual operations of the property. Exactly right. It doesn't. It has nothing to do with how the property operates. One of the more curious things uh, uh, regarding net operating income, uh, capital expenditures, don't affect net operating income because presumably because they are not necessary for the operation of the property. They may be necessary, you know, for the the long term survival of the property, but from a uh, at least from an industry standard point of view, they are not part of the operation of the property. So if uh, if you need to put a new roof on the property, that's not part of your net operating income. The most curious one is uh, commission costs. Which also are items, as I'm sure you, you're you're familiar, items that are normally capitalized rather than expensed, because they have presumably they reflect a, a life of more than a year, and that usually I think you know you guys are the tax experts, certainly not I, but I think that the 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 usual touchstone is that costs that you have that uh, uh, whose life expectancy is more than a year are not expensed with real property and costs which are have life expectancy of more than a year need to be capitalized and treated as as capital improvements or capital additions. So, for example, if I'm making a repair to something, um, that's an expense. But if I'm putting a new roof on, which has a 25 or 30-year life, then presumably that is not an expense. Yeah, so that that is right at the high level when you dive into the 2013 tangible property regs. We've talked about this on a prior podcast, if anybody's interested in looking that up. But when you dive into the 2013 tangible property regs, you have the betterment adaption restoration test. And what a lot of that boils down to, again, very generalized level, is materiality threshold. So if I make an improvement to a unit of property, let's say that I have 10 HVAC systems under one roof and I replace one HVAC system, I could pretty reasonably make the argument that I did not materially improve the HVAC system as a whole and therefore deduct that HVAC unit. But then the question becomes, so I can put that on the P&L as an expense rather than capitalizing and depreciating it over 27 or 39 years, uh, 27 and a half for 39 years. But then the question becomes, well, how does that actually affect my valuation at the end of the day, right? So if I put it on the P&L, it's going to affect my net operating income, which affects my cap rate, which then affects my valuation. So we have to, have to be pretty careful with a lot of that stuff. Yeah. But yeah, you, you can you can tax optimize and still, you know, we, we see a lot of CPAs just automatically put that stuff on the balance sheet. And what we do is we ask the question, of, well, does that actually make sense for the client? Yeah. The irony there, of course, is that if you successfully expense that uh, HVAC system, now you've reduced the NOI, so you've, re- so you've improved the property and reduced the value of the building, presumably. <laughs> 
Exactly. <laughs> you reduce your tax exposure, but then you also you've got that lower NOI that you have to deal with later. So, so cash flow is cash in, cash out. That's uh, relatively easy to understand at a high level. But what about discounted cash flow? How is that important and how does that play a role? Well, now we're getting to really the heart of the matter because as a real estate investor, you need to recognize that what you're really buying is not that pile of bricks that you're seeing on the corner with you know with the asphalt flat roof and, and all the rest of it. What you're really buying is an income stream. And on the assumption that you are a more or less typical real estate investor and are not buying a property before breakfast with the intention of selling it before lunch, you're more likely to be looking at the long-term hold, which means you are looking at a series of cash flows, not a single cash flow. Let's say for the sake of argument that your investment horizon with this property that you're looking at is going to be seven years, which is not unusual, by the way. So you have a series of cash flows, the money in minus the money out for the first year of operation, the same for the second year of operation, the third, fourth, fifth, and so on. Then in the 10th year, you've got the same thing, plus you have one more cash flow, and that is the cash flow that you receive from disposing of the property the cash you get out, the so-called reversion of the property. So you have a series of cash flows. And the interesting thing about them is that they are probably going to be all different amounts in each year. Certainly in the last year, you expect it to be a different amount if you're getting the sale of the property. And clearly, by definition, they don't all occur at the same time. The first year cash flow is occurring in the first year, and the second a year later, and the third a year after that, and so on. So we get into the whole time value of money discussion, which I'm sure is familiar to, to all of your listeners, and that is that money received in the future is less valuable than money you receive today. Can you explain the time value? So money received in the future, less valuable than money you received today. Can you explain that in just a very, like, do you have like a very simplistic example that you can... Everything I say is simplistic. <laughs> you apparently don't know me well enough. No, no it, is, it, is, it is extraordinarily simple. Here's an example I use with my students. I say, you know, you've all been so impressed with my lecture today, I tell them, that you want to give me a gratuity. One of you wants to give me a $100 gratuity, you know, as we leave this afternoon. The other although equally impressed, is a little short of cash and is going to give me my $100 gratuity next year. I'm grateful to both of you, of course. But the person who gives me the gratuity today, I'm a little more grateful to you because unlike the other gratuity, I can take your $100 and invest it today and earn more money so that when I get to the point one year from now when I'm getting the $100 from your other co-student friend here, that other student is going to give me $100, so his or her gratuity is worth, at that point, $100. But your gratuity was actually worth more because I put it in a money market account and I earned $0.32 cents with it, or, you know, or I invested in, you know, in uh, uh, Chinese ceramics and I you know, earned $32, whatever. But the fact that I had the money earlier meant that it was in my possession to reinvest. Whereas the longer I have to wait for it, the less value it becomes to me. 
and if we really wanted to dive into that, which we probably should, but we could. <laughs> if we really wanted to dive into that, you could also look at it from just the inflated value of a basket of goods, right? So a basket of goods today is worth your your hundred dollars gets you this basket of goods today. But if you get that same hundred dollars a year from now, you you can't buy the same basket of goods because everybody in that basket of goods has increased their price a little bit to keep up with inflation. Right, because those guys in Washington just got, got cranked up the printing presses, and you know now that hundred dollar bill, you know, doesn't buy me what it, I thought it was going to buy me. So yes, absolutely right. You can you can dive into it even a little bit deeper. But the, so the time value of money comes into play here because we look at that future series of cash flows that come from the property. And by the way, it's uh, the conventional wisdom is to look at them on an annualized basis because if you try to look at the cash flows literally on a day-to-day basis when they actually occur, you know, like uh, trying to figure out uh, discounting your rent payments from the actual day you receive them. If you tried to do all those discountings, by the time you were done, someone else would have bought the property and the entire exercise would have been pointless. So we look at it on an annualized basis. So if we have to wait... Uh, you know, one year to get X number of dollars, we discount that X number of dollars back by some discount rate by one year. If we have to wait two years to get the next cash flow, we have to discount that one back twice. So that becomes even less valuable. Three years, even less valuable because we're discounting it back three times to get it to the present value. This is a present value calculation. So essentially, when we do discounted cash flow analysis, where it begins, and hopefully not where it ends. Where it begins is we look at all those future cash flows. We take each one of them, and whatever amount that cash flow is, we discount it back by a discount rate, an opportunity cost, if you will. And we discount it back to the present. Then we add up the present value of all of those future cash flows. And when we do that, we have what we believe is the present value of the entire income stream. So what we have is a value that says, if what I want is an X percent return on my money, then this is what I can afford to pay for that income stream. That's the present value of the future income stream. And that's useful information, but it's a, it may be a little esoteric, because it doesn't boil down the real worth of the investment from the point of view of, you know, is this a good deal or bad deal kind of decision for somebody? And it also depends on your choosing an appropriate discount rate. Uh, we we discussed NOI, cap rate, debt service ratio now, cash flow, discounted cash flow, the time value money. We understand that the internal rate of return is like the prized metric that a lot of investors use. How does this all tie into internal rate of return? And what is internal rate of return? Okay. Excellent question. So our present value discussion here, we got to a present value of the future cash flows, and we did that by choosing a discount rate. But where present value, I think, becomes a problem for many investors is deciding what is an appropriate discount rate. Internal rate of return is the one metric that allows an investor, a single number, if you will, that that investor can look at that takes into account both the timing and the size of all of the future cash flows. It boils it all down into just a single metric. And it's actually a lot easier to understand than most people think. I mean, we've been, you know, 
marketing our software to investors now for I think it's been something like 37 years. And from conversations with the uh, with folks who use it, I get the strong impression that everybody agrees that the higher the IRR, the better. Except, of course, if the IRR is like 72%, in which case it means that you did your math wrong, because nobody gets that kind of an IRR. But they don't really understand where it comes from. Well, it's really just taking that same present value logic that we just saw and saying, I want to change the variable. With a present value calculation, we said, okay, I think I can reasonably estimate the future cash flows, including the cash flow from the sale of the property. And I'm going to discount them by a certain rate to decide what is the value of those future cash flows. What IRR does is say, starting off at the same place, I think I can estimate the amount of the future cash flows, including the cash flow from sale. But instead of choosing a discount rate, I'm going to say, no, I don't know the discount rate, which means I know the other variable. I know what I'm going to pay for that future income stream. In other words, I know how much money I have decided I am putting into this deal, how much I'm going to pay for it in cash, okay, over and above the financing, how much money I'm going to put into it. So I've got the value of the income stream. I've got the income stream itself. And so my question is, what single rate actually describes getting all of those cash flows with all of that timing? What rate, what one and only rate would I use if I were going to get X number of dollars the first year, Y number of dollars the second year, Z number of dollars the third year, and so on? Essentially, I'm finding the discount rate that says the future cash flows are worth what I'm putting into them. And that's all that IRR is. And so if a person has a sense of what is an acceptable internal rate of return for the type of property that he or she is buying, They can do that IRR calculation and say, okay, no, that's not high enough. And the only way I can get it higher is either to increase my projections of the income stream, which may not be a prudent thing to do, or reduce how much I have to pay for that income stream. I've got a quick question. So, and this might be a little bit of a sidebar. We work with a lot of syndications and real estate funds, real estate syndicates and funds. And we see a lot of operating agreements, but when we work with the general partnership and also when we're working with the investors that are investing in all these deals, we see a lot of, a lot of operating agreements that display their distribution waterfall, right? So it'll be like first your preferred return and then second X and Y and Z. Sometimes we see operating agreements that'll say, you know, first we're going to pay all the limited partners an 8% preferred return on the aggregate capital that they've invested in the deal, which makes sense. But then the second step will be, it'll say, and then we're going to pay the limited partners an amount equal to like a 15% IRR or an 18% IRR. And then after that, it'll say, and then the general partner is going to get 40% of the distribution. The limited partner is going to get 60% of the distribution until a 20% IRR is achieved. And then it keeps going down. My question is, when you're buying a big deal, you're not going to get an 18% IRR until you liquidate, right? Am I right in thinking that your IRR is based on your outflows and then your inflows? And you're not going to get a big positive IRR until you receive the big positive inflow, which is going to come at sale. So really putting the IRR in a distribution waterfall and your operating agreements is not a 
good strategic move in most cases, unless that's literally what you're trying to model out, but then just understand you're never going to get past that step. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I share your apprehension there. I just don't see without the, uh, the, the final dissolution of the, of, the, of the property where you're going to generate that kind of cash uh, to make those numbers work. Cool. All right. Yeah, so I feel like, very vindicated right now. Yeah. <laughs> you got the famous Frank telling me that I'm right. Well, yeah, <laughs> I got I to go take a look. We we put a waterfall calculation into our software. I got to go back and take a look and see if our if our example has a way of making this happen. <laughs> but, but I'd be I'd be uh, I'd be reluctant to suggest that I can think of a way off the top of my head that somebody's going to achieve uh, you know that kind of an IRR. You know, Frank, maybe that's and I don't know if you like provide consulting services to these syndicates. But what we do is we, we see a lot of these attorneys that try to model the economics of the deal with legal language. But then we'll see things like that. And it's like, oh, that just shoots the entire deal like in the foot, right? So maybe maybe people just need to reach out to Frank to double check that their operating agreement makes sense before they sign it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's like people who sell variable annuities for retirement. I mean, they're all based on on assumptions that I don't think have ever been seen in, you know, don't exist in real in, in, in natural life, right. um, you know? and so uh, I think it, this is this is, gets back to my entire due diligence conversation earlier. That you know, where did these numbers come from? Uh, before you start crunching, I mean, you know, what where did the source numbers come from that that presumably would make any of this stuff happen? All right, I'm going to popcorn back over to Tom. I think he's got one more question, and we'll close out. Okay, Frank, thanks, thanks so much for explaining uh, the, the linear analysis of of a property all the way from NOI down to internal rate of return. It's been amazing. But we understand that you have software that helps real estate uh, investors and developers w- uh, with your company, Real Data. Uh, could you give us a little bit of uh, an idea of how that helps investors and then what the special offers you have for our listeners? Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, yes, the software is what I alluded to at the very beginning of our talk, but it's gone through about 18 generations of, of refinement and improvement uh, over those years. And that... Uh, that software does the kind of discounted cash flow analysis that we've been talking about. It allows you to, to build an APOD form to get to your NOI and then to project out to as far as 20 years, if you want to, future potential cash flows. And we tell people when you do these kinds of analyses, by the way, you know, don't assume that you've got this kind of locked in stone. Do a best case, worst case, and somewhere in between kind of analysis. Uh, and the software makes that very easy to do because it does all the heavy lifting for you. It does all those funny calculations that are needed in order to make these kinds of projections. So we have two versions of that software, one which we call our professional version and one we call Express, which is for you know, perhaps simpler properties and uh, for folks who aren't into quite that level of, uh, of detail that is the pro version. So uh, there's those two products. We also have a couple of products for developers that can allow them to do project cost analysis for a new development project or a month-by-month uh, development plan for something like a, a subdivision or a condo project. And then the, the latest thing that we had, and uh, um, which uh, is what my, my little special uh, promotional offer is to your listeners, is the online video course where I take all of these topics that we've been talking about and some more besides, you know, development topics, some partnership topics, uh, value add topics and so on, all of the, all of the key metrics. And I do that in a series of uh, video lessons. And with those video lessons come, you know, some extra resources, some little simple spreadsheets and, and checklists and quizzes to, uh, to check uh, your own progress through the course and even a, uh, a digital 
a completion certificate when you're all done. So people can, can uh, uh, as we kind of anticipated when we got about partway, as a partway through our, our career here in selling the software, uh, it helps people with understanding these topics, understanding the metrics and how they work in real life. We have case study examples, made up cases that we take people through kind of step-by-step step doing these analyses in that courseware. So uh, we hope that it helps people make more intelligent, more informed investment decisions. Awesome, awesome, man! Could you just give us the, could you just give us the promo code one more time? We'll go ahead and drop that in the show notes below uh, for everybody who's listening out there. Yep, the our software website is realdata.com. The educational component is learn.realdata.com, and the promo code is real cpa 20 got it real cpa 20 so 20 for the year 2020 yes awesome awesome so this is uh we're gonna go ahead and drop that again everybody's listening into the show notes so uh if you are interested go ahead and check that out we'll also have the link to the website and um yeah so frank thanks so much for coming on today it's been an honor to have you on the show um we're big fans of your book i think like like brand said it was one of the first books that i've read I have it in my virtual bookshelf uh, <laughs> and I always uh, take, take it back for reference. And I, and I, I truly believe that every investor out there should really have it for reference. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at the with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.